Growing up as a kid in France, there wasn't a chance that Philippe Sais would end up doing anything other than creating music. Quite simply, this child prodigy was a jazz drummer at the age of five, playing in his father's jazz band. After winning a scholarship at the Berklee School of Music in Boston, he studied under the great vibraphonist and percussionist Gary Burton. The rest is history, as Philippe followed Burton's lead as a vibraphonist and marimba instrumentalist, but also as a keyboardist. As a multi-instrumentalist, he caught the ear of Al Demiola and was invited to play on Demiola's Splendido Hotel recording. Sais provided vocals, playing keyboards and Moog bass, and even provided outstanding marimba solos throughout the project. During his career as an arranger, session keyboardist, composer, and producer, he's worked with Shaka Khan, The Rolling Stones, Al Jarreau, David Sanborn, Brian Wilson, Bill Evans, and David Bowie. Recently, he has reconnected with drummer Simon Phillips and bassist Pino Palladino to form PSP. This jazz fusion trio is truly an experimental collaboration that pushes the limits of improvisational composition. He's produced many solo projects over his career, his most recent being At World's Edge, which led to the creation of PSP. Inside MusicCast welcomes Philippe Sais. Hey, Philippe, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. How's everything? Good, good. Doing great. Hey, hey Philippe, uh, a great place to start the interview is is obviously uh, with something uh, that, that we've posted, and I think you posted uh, on your uh, website in 2009. It was a neat clip, a 1962 clip of a child prodigy, maybe five or seven years old. He was uh, geniusly playing drums in a jazz combo. He was excellent, and you know who I'm talking about. Tell us a little bit about this little boy and uh, and where this sort of all began, would you please? Yeah, and I noticed that you reposted it this morning. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, just some groundwork for, for our listeners. But explain a little bit what's happening there. Well, I was some somewhat of a child prodigy, mm-hmm. and, and my dad, who's actually in the video, the, the gentleman playing the piano is actually my dad. Okay. okay. And um, he was a singer-songwriter, and so there was a lot of music at home. And we started, uh, I started playing the drums, and he was playing the piano and drums, so we used to jam, you know, every night when he would come home from work. And that's really what, you know, what started my my musical uh, sensibility, was just playing with my dad and jamming. Um, Now, since he was in the business... um, you know, I'm not exactly sure the the details, but I ended up making some records as a drummer, and I was, you know, I had a stage name of of Philippe Carl. Yeah. You know, don't ask me why. And uh, <laughs> so that was that. And then and then I made a record of instrumentals with a big band where I was playing drums when I was five, five and a half. Wow. So that TV show was actually uh, some promotional. Um, it was in a in a in a in a network. Um, newscast thing and they were talking about me being the the young at the time the youngest drummer in the world whatever yeah. <laughs> blah blah it was just like you know some local you know celebrity thing and uh and then i made another record where actually i was singing when i was six or seven and that was basically it um then i just concentrated on my studies and whatever but uh, that was my my claim to fame as a, as, as a five-year-old there were three tv shows which I recently unearthed in the uh, 
museum of, of broadcasting in France. They have copies of everything. So that's where I got that, uh, that black and white footage. Yeah, because you, you can tell that it's not necessarily just a video. It was uh, very cleverly edited, and there was a voiceover and the whole thing. So I, I sort of uh, knew that there was some serious programming there for the broadcast, you know? Oh, yeah, no, it was like a, like a serious, uh, like a 60-minute type uh-huh. of TV show that, that we had in France. It was quite, quite famous and, and broadly uh, viewed. Uh, but it was very serious, like a news thing. It was not an entertainment thing. It was like a 60-minute, exactly like. You mentioned that your dad was the, the pianist in that video, but who are the other guys? Uh, are those guys that your dad worked with professionally on, on a regular basis? Yeah, they were like, like studio guys that he used, uh, the, the, the guitar player, of, of, um, um, I forgot his name. But yeah, they were guys that were in the studio all the time that were hired for the day, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I mean... It was it was my dream, uh, you know, to play with with musicians. I just, I mean, that was my life. It's it's always been my priority. Was you know, I was waiting. I was counting the hours for my dad to come home and jam with him. And whenever I had an opportunity to play in the studio with real guys, you know, with a bass player and a guitar player, you know, on top of that, it was just like it was just you know the greatest thing, better than. Any comic books or, or any <laughs> yeah. toys or anything, you know. Yeah, you know, you know, back in this era, you know, I think people need to know that jazz was, although it was very popular and it was, uh, um, you know, it had just a, a sort of a magnetism to it. In France, it, for some reason, it had a very interesting embrace of jazz, especially the trad jazz. Even back, uh, you know, in the uh, we're talking the you know the, in the sixties, in the fifties, and uh, uh, would you agree that there was just a, a certain passion for Jazz in, in France. Oh yeah, that yeah. Was going jazz, jazz was the only music in in, in our household, basically. Mm-hmm. And and even as a five year old, when the the uh, the the guy is asking me, you know, uh, at some point he's he, he asks me what kind of uh, you know if I know the twist, you know, and right, oh, right. I know the bossa nova and this and that, you know, all the the new hip dances that came out in yeah. the sixties. We're talking about. Uh, it was probably 1962 when that show uh, was was taped. Yeah, and you know my answer is quickly yeah, but I really like jazz much better. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and every Saturday, every single Saturday, we listened to Count Basie and Dave Brubeck and 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 the Jazz Messengers. I mean, that was the only music in the household, and you know, French you know pop music, but but mainly. Mainly jazz. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, you were born in Marseille and raised in Paris, uh, where you studied at the Conservatoire de Paris. Uh, mm-hmm. How old were you when you entered uh, the conservatory? I entered uh, the Paris National Conservatory when I was fifteen, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I started um, to the the municipal conservatory when I was five and a half. Yeah, about five and a half, taking. <laughs> Percussion, piano, and and solfege, and you know theory and all that stuff. I, I would have to imagine that you were, if you're entering at five years old, even even at a, I guess you could say a, a more elementary level, that was still um, you still had to be the youngest, you know, cat in the in the whole school. I would imagine, right? Yeah, we were we were uh, we were actually. Um, well, here's a little funny story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we were actually two, the two youngest uh, kids in the piano class and uh, the solfege class was me and uh, and this cute little blonde 
girl uh, who was also, you know, five, five and a half. Her name was Claudine. Mm -hmm. And we became, we stayed friends and we stayed in touch until we were, you know, early teenagers, I think. She she left the music field, um, I think at about 10 or 12 years old. Anyway, anyway but the last time I saw her, we were like maybe 12 or 13, something like that. Uh-huh. And we, I found her on Facebook Recently, she actually came to the PSP show in Paris last month when we were the new morning in Paris. She actually came with her son, who's I don't know, a hundred years old. He's like (laughs) 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 he's like thirty. I mean, I can't, you know, I mean, I can't picture the last time I saw Claudine. She was like the the little young little girl, and and now she's like a woman. I mean, beautiful and 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 attractive and and whatnot. And but it was just incredible. And we hadn't seen each other in 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 you know close to uh, forty years. So it's amazing. So she came to the show, and it was fantastic. And but we used to be at in Solfège, the two of us, and we were the youngest in the class. Yeah, Facebook brings a lot of people together. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. <laughs> well, you know, we, we've interviewed so many other great mus- musicians like yourself, you know, who've been prodigies, you know, also. And this may be a difficult question, but when you see yourself playing jazz in that, like that 1962 clip we talked about, what do you see and what is it that, that clicked with you, you know, as a young boy, musically speaking? I mean, this is really all you've ever known and you were just kind of locked in right from the start. Yeah, well, you know, things happened for a reason and and I think that if I was brought up into this world in this family, you know, with with the parents that I had that were very supportive, I mean there's there's a good reason for it. Um it, it's, you know, which is a good thing because I'm I'm completely I can't do anything else but <laughs> play music. I, I'm incapable of of leading a normal life. You know, <laughs> so I can't balance a checkbook. I can't put a nail in a wall. I I I can hardly do anything. You know, so well. Thank God there's music. That's got, that's exactly thank God right. there's music, and thank <laughs> God the parents that I had and who were completely supportive, and 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 I had the uh, an early musical education, and and uh, and ended up you know, being sent to Berkeley and, and, you know, and the rest is history. But, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What year was that that you actually landed in Berkeley because you actually landed a scholarship? Uh, what year was that? It was 1975. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the day I got, um, I forgot the exact date. It was in June, June 12th. My mom would, would remember exactly. But at the day I got my first prize at Paris Conservatory, so I graduated, the next day, I was on a flight uh, to Boston to go and meet my uh, my mentor, who, well, who became a mentor, Gary Burton. Mm-hmm. So it was the next day. I didn't waste any time staying in France. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you 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 probably know this already, but Gary Burton is an Indiana native. And, I know. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, you know, when you say that he was one of your mentors, uh, he he's a vibe player. If anybody knows the name Gary Burton, it's uh, you know he was huge. He played with. Gee whiz, Bill Evans, Chet Atkins, Stan Getz, I mean all the all the classic guys, you know? Yeah, he's 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 one of a kind and, and to this day, I mean no one has even come close to to uh to you know to match his his, his genius. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And I was a student, I was I was grateful to to have you know, he took me under his wing and and, and got me a scholarship and I was um I became his assistant. I was teaching some some vibes ensembles and whatnot, and he kept me at Berkeley. 
So the reason why I stayed in the States is, is really thanks to him. Because um, at the end of the summer semester that I came to Berkeley for and to study with him, you know, he asked me, I said, what are you doing now? I said, I'm going back to France. He says, well, what are you going to do there? I said, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you stay? And, and, you know, and I remember calling my parents and saying, hey, Gary Burton wants me to stay. And I remember as if it was yesterday. So he was absolutely instrumental in, in, in making me the person that I am today. And, and, and thank God that, that Gary was around. So, so, um, so at Berkeley, you studied performance and the vibe and marimba. Is, I, mean, that's, uh, I mean, did any keyboards? I mean, I, granted, they are keyboards in a way in, in the lingo. But uh, um, so that was, your, that was your main competency, your, your study path. Well, I, I studied everything. I was still playing a lot of drums uh-huh. at the times. I was playing classical percussion at the conservatory, uh, conservatory and, and uh, so when I came to Berkeley, I just registered as everything. I played vibes, wow. you know, with Gary. I played drums in some recording band with Herb Pomeroy, and I played the piano. I studied with James Williams. Um, the piano, and I was in several ensembles. So I, I actually took everything, and I remember asking Gary, I said, well, what, what should I do? I don't know what to choose. I mean, someday I'm going to have to pick. And he says, well, you don't have to worry about it now. It'll come naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just That's cool. kept playing the three things, and then naturally uh, he was right. And, and to, you know, and the, the, the funny thing is, is when I announced uh, Gary that I was leaving Boston and 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 join Narda Michael Walden's band and and go on the road to play synthesizers with him. He just was not very happy and and to this day we have a great laugh and we joke <laughs> about it. You know because he always tells people this was my my favorite my 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 best student and and I thought he'd be the one taking over. You know the the mantle of of you know the premier vibes player and whatever. And he kind of. Forgot about the vibes and became, you know, a synthesizer player with Narda Michael Walden. He was like completely incensed, you know. But we laugh about it, and he actually talked about that at length in a really, really funny uh, byline. In, in my, um, he wrote the, um, the, um, the the byline in my in my. Um, Acoustic trio record, the Body and Soul sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and it's really funny where he he talks about it. And and I saw him. I ran into Gary at the Grammys last year when when we were both nominated, and it was great seeing him. And 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 again, he went. You know, he said, "Well, you know, you, you went and played keyboard, and you should have played the vibes." <laughs> Well, Gary Burton is a name that I remember when I was a kid because uh, when when I first you know got into music as well, I um, wanted to get into percussion. And when I entered school, I actually just somehow I gravitated towards marimba, and I studied marimba for probably ten years. And um, I used to watch Gary Burton all the time whenever he was on. You know, the rare times you could ever see him on television. You know, I I, I would watch him, and I'd like you know guys like Lionel Hampton and anybody that you know picked up that instrument. I, I was watching. Mm-hmm. So, but Gary yeah. Burton was certainly you know. One of the guys that, uh, and I, he was kind of the guy who really, uh, really sort of, uh, I guess, popularized or at least founded the, the kind of the four mallet technique, wasn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and which was you know the, a big mystery. I mean you know, in France when we studied classical percussion and we play, we have a completely different technique of holding the the mallets. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when we used to watch Gary, I mean, we could not figure out so how does he do that because <laughs> technique does not really lend itself to being, you know, having such virtuosity in in playing the vibes. So right. 
one of the big mysteries growing up in France was looking at, at Gary and how does he do that? How does he hold the, the mallet? So when I finally met him and I said, how do you hold the mallets? And he, he I remember, like it was yesterday again, he just put the mallets in a, in a cross on top of the, the keyboard, the vibes, and mm -hmm. he said, grab them. Right. And I grabbed them and there it was. Yeah, and it I was. never looked at the technique ever again. It was like, <laughs> oh. All right. So when I went back to France and I showed my buddies from conservatory, I said, well, this is how Gary plays, you know, and it's like, well, wow. It was like a whole new thing, but it was like a, a big secret, you know, that no one really knew, you know, unless you had studied with him. So he developed, I mean, that's his, his own grip. That's the Gary Burton grip as opposed to the more traditional yeah. vibes, you know, classical grip. Yeah. So Narada Michael. Okay, so you play the marimba. Did you ever see that? Um, have you ever seen that Al Demiola clip on the David Letterman show where I play the marimba with Al? <laughs> Ironically, I just saw it today. Oh, okay. I, I watched it today, and it was it was it was awesome. I love yeah. that. <laughs> that was beautiful, and I, we should post that on on we the, the site so everybody can see that. But yeah. that's that was beautiful. Yeah, that's great. That's that was that was um, pretty interesting. I, I don't know who who got that one. I, it just it just surfaced <laughs> surfaced a few uh, last year. I couldn't believe it. You know. But I remember vividly, you know, doing during the show. It was incredible. Yeah, there's there's two clips up there. There's one of just the performance, but there's also one uh, where it's a little extended and you see the interview with David Letterman and Oh Al, yeah, where, where, where David Letterman asks uh, he tells Al Dimo says, So you've been called the the best guitar player in the world. Is that true? <laughs> Al looks at him and says Yes, I've been told that. <laughs> that's what a good answer. That's good. The, the most humble guy on the planet. <laughs> yes, that's me. <laughs> You're looking at him. I love Al, but you know, humility is not his middle name. <laughs> that's funny. So Narada Wa Michael Walden, he uh, he comes by and he steals you. And 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 uh, what were the reasons for hopping on with Narada? Because back then it was uh, you know his R and B sort of funky type of feel. What attracted you? Uh, did you need the money, or was it something about Narada that that you just want to say, hey, look, this feels interesting. I can do this. Well, no, I mean Narada was my hero. I mean yeah. Narada was you know replaced Billy Cobham with Mahavishnu. I mean he was. I I saw Narada play with Mahavishnu, John McLaughlin in Paris when when I was you know a young teenager when I was right. you know twelve or thirteen. So he was my hero, and and the, you know he was. That was the beginning of this transition from you know into commercial music. But for me, he was the new Billy Cobham. So. You know, as a student at Berkeley, when, when Michael Gibbs, with whom I was taking composition classes, who used to work and, and do all the string arrangements for Narada, and John McLaughlin, actually, um, announced in school, in the class, that Narada was auditioning keyboard players. And it was like, wow, you know, of course I got to do this. You know, I mean, I had no idea that he would, you know, the, the gig would be a much more R&B thing, but it was irrelevant because all I wanted was, was a gig and play with Narada. Yeah. So it was like the, you know, the beginning of my, my professional career in the States. Yeah, well, we'll talk about your professional career. In '79, you uh, you actually performed uh, backing vocals and keyboards, even including a, a Moog bass part uh, on and also marimba for Al uh, Dimiola's Splendido Hotel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, after my uh, my stint with with Narada, um, Dimiola actually hired the uh, the whole rhythm section, the bass player uh, Tim Lenders and Robbie Gonzalez, the drummer, and myself, to join his band. So we, in, in, which was the case a lot, you know, back in the days, there was so many gigs and. 
people were floating right out of Berkeley into some some prestigious bands and and then you know people were floating so you know TM Stevens who was playing with us originally with uh, um with uh with Aldi Miola no no I'm sorry it was it was Tim Lenders uh, uh, TM Stevens was playing bass with with Narda okay. and and we all uh, joined Di Miola but when TM Stevens was asked to join John McLaughlin's band he left and then I got my friend Tim Lenders who was at Berkeley and I'd seen him perform there to join that band so it was it was the case you know uh, quite a bit people were floating around and getting prestigious gigs and it was a lot of fun but um it was shortly after our tour with Nar- with Narada that we joined Dimiola and then that was uh, that was my gig for uh, for 5 years and the first wow after a first um, few months on the road he was working on a new album called Splendido Hotel you right and and uh, I wrote uh one song and and co-wrote one with him and those were the first songs ever recorded in the states wow we have a we have a correspondent that's in Germany, and um, his name is uh, Uwe Reith, and he had a question for you. Um, he said the accuracy and, and breathtaking speed of playing the vibraphone on Al Demiola's Fantasia Suite is 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 out of this world, so to speak. And he said, "How many times uh, do or did you have to prepare yourself for a gig with someone like Al or another artist with with such demanding charts?" In this particular session with Al, uh, or was this particular session was Al, Al one of the more difficult sessions that you were a part of? Well, it's a good question. You know, the the truth of the matter is, in those days, I mean, I was probably at the top of my of my technical, mm-hmm. you know, prowess. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just fresh out of out of. I mean, I was what twenty twenty year old, so I had graduated at seventeen from Paris Conservatory, and so I was basically a robot. I mean, I was just <laughs> playing nonstop, you know, as fast as I could, and reading as fast as I could and just, you know, I mean, regardless of whether it was good or not, but I was just playing as fast as I could. It, it was machine, just, yeah. the idea was just like, we were machines, we were robots, we were just like, you know, incredibly technically, you know, it, it was just insane. So when I got here, playing with, with, with Al was, you know, felt, I felt right at home because there was nothing that I felt that I couldn't play. Now it would not be the case because after, you know, years of playing pop music and, and rock music and doing sessions and really not practicing as much. I mean, it would take me forever to get back into that, you know, the, the, the that shape sure. that I was in back. It's like, it's like working out, you know, it's like being an athlete. I mean, we were like athletes at the, the top of our game, yeah, in the, right. you know, how fast we play and how accurately we played. But now I would have to, to, to practice, you know, for, for, for years <laughs> to get to that level, <laughs> you know, if ever. So, it was not, it didn't feel that it was that, ch- I mean, it was, it was challenging, but, but we had the chops, you know, because we were all fresh out of school. I wanted to ask you, I was just thinking about what you were saying about being young and being, you know, just at the top of your game from just a chops perspective. And, 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 and uh, have you ever witnessed or have you ever seen uh, a, a drum corps international show? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. People, you know, people look at that and they just think of it as, as marching band. But when you really get down to what they're doing, it's just phenomenal. You know, you're watch, you're marching. You know, the guys are out there marching at 130, 140 beats per second, sometimes faster, and they're pushing so much air through these horns, and yeah. uh, and and the charts are off the charts. You know, they're just yeah, they're yeah. incredible what they're doing down there. Yeah, so, no, it's it, they're like 
really incredible virtuosos that that's what that's what they are absolutely yeah. well I, I was in still talking about al demiola um was this connection with al where you first met simon phillips yeah absolutely was in it? 1982 the last tour that i ever did with al he changed the band completely and uh, uh wanted to have simon play drums and anthony jackson on bass and mingo lewis on 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 percussion and and only have one keyboard player, so that was a different uh, band entirely. And I was mm-hmm. absolutely thrilled when I heard that he had asked Simon to join the band because I was such a big fan of Simon's um, from the, uh, the the Pete Townsend record, and um, uh, and uh, um, there was another record that I, I was absolutely. It was mind-boggling, but anyway, I was a oh, and and uh, and Jeff Beck. Oh, sure, yeah, of course. And uh, so I was a big fan of 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 Simon, and and I was you know I couldn't wait to meet him. And and then when we met, it turned it turns out that we had uh, a lot in common. We we were born one day apart of the same year. That's right. And um, we are um, we just so we became really really good friends. I, I went to his house. We started doing projects together. You know, in in 1982. And uh, we then, Jeff Beck asked me to stay. We played in London at the Hammersmith with Demiola. Everybody went back to the States and Jeff asked Simon to ask me to stay. And I stayed in London to work on a, on a project with Simon and Jeff, cool. which never really materialized into anything. It was actually, it ended up being a, a total debacle with the producer. And, but anyway, it's just like it. One of the one of the darkest moment of my career, <laughs> but uh, um, but you know, but Jeff, you know, we're we're cool still, and uh, I see him once in a while. Um, um, but Simon and I became, you know, we stayed really good friends. So when I went back to the states, um, we kind of lost touch for a while, and then when he moved to California to join Toto, that was. A little, a little, it got a little better, and then certainly when I decided to make the move from New York to to LA, he we became you know fast friends again, and he actually invited me in his studio where I was set up for the first three years of, of being here, mm-hmm. and that's when the idea, of, and that's when he played on my my album, my last solo record uh, at World's Edge, mm-hmm. and that's when the uh, the the idea of of putting a band together with Simon you know started so. So you know, yeah, we've been we've been friends since 1982, and through Al Dimiola. Very, very, cool. very cool. Well, we're going to talk a little more about Simon, and uh, of course, your PSP project later in the interview. But for right now, let's uh, take a quick break, and I want to check out a studio track by PSP, and this one is called Bela Boogie.
You know, if someone was to take a look at your discography on, online and, and is familiar with the work that you've 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 put out over the years, it's pr- pretty mind boggling. Just like it is with uh, you know quite you know a few of the guests that we have on. But I'm gonna let, let's do something here real quick, and, and we don't have to take a lot of time discussing it. But uh, I'm gonna mention a couple of the early projects that you worked on with some artists that sort of stand out in your discography, and uh, tell us a little bit about what you remember about these collaborations. If it's uh if it's sort of vague and we'll move on to the next one. But uh, I, there's a couple here that I'd like to mention. I'm going to mention their names and a couple of projects. And I have to, I have to tell you that anything prior to last week is vague. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're like me and Rick then. I'm the same way. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, you can remember 1962, but the last week was a tough one, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, let's start off with um, Shaka Khan. Uh, you were, you, f- you were, you Who's played. That? I don't know. This one, <laughs> this one, soulful check, you know. Uh, um, did you? <laughs> um, I feel for you. You. What do you remember of uh, you played synths and arranged um, for Shaka? Yeah, I mean that. That was another um, serious milestone in in my life, and just a happenstance. I, I was working after I decided to not go on the road anymore after the 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 uh, the Jeff Beck debacle and and the end of 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 Demiola's, you know, five years. I was kind of tired of mm-hmm. of doing that and going on the road and and Al started, you know, wanted to do something else entirely. And that's when he started doing more world kind of, you know, music. I really wanted to stay put in New York and start working in studios and do more commercial music and, and just, just stay put in New York and produce and write songs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I started working writing Pop songs with a with a lyricist, um, Rhoda Roberts. We used to write a lot of lyrics uh, back in the days and write for TV shows and stuff. Like she was a great writer. She lived in a building on 86th Street on the West Side, and was a neighbor of of, of Shaka. Shaka lived in the same building. A bunch of people lived in that really great, typical New York building, like you know, uh, with a doorman and. And big rooms and like you know the odd couple's apartment type thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, so she said, "Oh, you know, Shaka lives in the building, and she's looking for songs. Let's write a song for Shaka." So we started writing a couple of songs for Shaka, and I met Shaka, and we did uh, we and we got along great, and we wrote um, three songs for her, which we demoed on my uh, little Fostex uh, four track cassette player which yeah. we used with Simon also when we worked on our demos at the time which we still have those demos this sound amazing but really? we used to have a, a four track cassette Fostex oh no it was a Tascam and um, so we did demos with Shaka and she presented those songs to um, Arif Martin who was producing her and Arif listened to the demos and liked them and said I want you to continue working with this, this keyboard player cool. you know, he liked the keyboards particularly so so that's when I met Arif, and when the demos materialized into you know the album, which ended up being a feel for you. Out of the three songs, two ended up on the record: Chinatown and uh, La Flamme. Um, and Arif asked me to play on on some of the rest of the record, including "I Feel for You" and some of the songs. And from that point, I mean, that was like a, a momentous meeting with Arif and, and I became Arif's main keyboard player and, and arranger for his uh, you know more productions that that Arif would produce so that was um, that was my um, my connection with uh, 
with with Shaka. Very good. I think another interesting connection, or one that might be uh, what you consider a milestone, was work you did with the Rolling Stones. I think on the Dirty Work album. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was um, kind of goes without saying, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to this day, uh, you know, I'll always remember walking down on, on Madison Avenue in Manhattan when when uh, the album Dirty Works came out. The vi- and I, I I went to uh, Tower of Virgin. I forgot which. Mm-hmm. I went to buy the the vinyl, and when I looked, and I'm walking down the street, looking at the credits, and I see my name <laughs> on the album next to Jimmy Page on the Rolling Stone record. I said, I looked up and I said, God, you can take me now. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> right. You know, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody slap me, you know. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. Very cool. You've also well, it was an amazing. It was it was it was really cool because, you know. Um, Playing with the Stones, it's it's it's. Um, I mean, I didn't I didn't play. I didn't go on the road with the Stones, right. but, but right. I, certainly in the studio and and work with Jagger. You know, uh, prior to that, who knew me before um, working on on a, on his solo record. The tracks. I mean, the work that I did on his solo record did not end up on the album, but I knew Mick and and we were hanging out. We actually were. At some point, pretty close. We used to play racquetball in New York. Uh, I used to take him to to uh, this friend of mine's uh, racquetball court. He used to manage. My friend Brad used to manage this racquetball court, and he was right across the street from uh, from Mick's uh, townhouse on the Upper West Side. So I used to go and pick him up, see Jerry Hall in the house, and and we <laughs> across the street and we go and play racquetball. And it was really cool. And you know, he would come to my house also and. And one of the biggest kick I've ever had in my life was to ride the elevator of my my high-rise apartment, yeah. taking Mick back down to get a cab, and see the look on people's face in the <laughs> elevator. <laughs> Typical New Yorkers, where they're like looking, and like they recognize, they know it's Mick Jagger, but they don't pretend they don't look at it. But they have like really, really uncomfortable and Mick has <laughs> yeah. smirk on his face because he's looking at me, he's saying like, "Yeah, I know they recognize me, but they're not saying anything." And it was like. <laughs> a riot you know and you know as i lived on the 22nd floor it was a really long ride to go to the to the ground floor so that that's a very long ride to be with a bunch of people that are definitely (laughs) recognize mick jagger and pretending not to see him and just like feeling really uncomfortable and whatnot and and him cracking up because he sees that it was just absolutely mind-boggling i'll always remember it yeah yeah so it was fun and, and being in the studio with with Nick working on on uh, Dirty Works, you know Harlem Shuffle and all those tracks, I mean it was it was just incredible. I mean I, I really felt um, t- it meant it meant quite a lot for me to to be in in that world. Sure. Mm-hmm. This past summer, um, I had the 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 good luck of of meeting up with Larry Williams, who is uh, right now who was played for years with Al Jarreau on the road. Right. And uh, you played on some significant uh, albums uh, with him, and one of them is Ella's for Lover, and the other one is Hearts Horizon, which are phenomenal albums. And uh, you did played and you uh, did key bass and some things. Uh, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Al. It's wonderful. Oh, we're we're just great friends, and we we got along right away. We we met um, after doing all the work for for our reef. I I kind of became now Rogers guy, and then was working with Nile and all of his productions. And Nile is a dear friend of mine, um, and he 
one of the the record that we worked on together was he produced he produced Jero's Alice for Lover, and that's when I met Al and we we got along great right away. He's a big Francophile and and the sessions were absolutely incredible. Being in the studio with Niall and and Steve Ferroni and and Anthony Jackson every day mm-hmm. for weeks, you know, and doing great music and playing live, you know, it was just an incredible thing and and. Uh, you know, one day we were taking a break from a session. Everybody was in the control room, but um, Steve Ferroni, the wonderful drummer who's a dear friend, and he was playing this, a groove, and I started jamming with him. Mm-hmm. And on the my DX7 at the time, I remember, and we started playing this groove. Like for a very long time, it kept going on and on, and it was like a really, in, you know, it was like a, a cool little little thing that I, that, that I came up with on uh-huh. his groove. And then finally, I said, well, what the hell's going on? I'd say, how come everyone knows what is in the studio? Your <laughs> five-minute break turned out to be like you know, your 45-minute break. So I walk into the control room, and, and Al is, is, is gesturing to the, the engineer to start playing the two-track tape, and he had recorded the whole jam session with, with Ferroni. And, uh, and, and at the end of it, so we're playing, and I say, well, that sounds cool, but... You know what? Why is he recording the the, the, ses- the jam session with Froni? And at the end, he says, ah, in his his typical inimitable voice and 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 way of you know of accentuating mm-hmm. words and whatever. He says, Philippe, I want you to finish this song. <laughs> 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 so I went home and I, I I turned it into a song. We turned it into a song. He wrote. You know, lyrics partly in French, and and you know, and the song is is says, yeah, which is a play on word, you know, on, on my name, and, and and which is, you know, an incredible honor, and and we became great friends, and that song was a got a lot of attention, you know, internationally. He still sings it live, and you know, twenty years later, just about. And oh yeah, so incredible it, experience for me to to have that, and he had the 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 foresight and. Listening to something, you know, of, of I guess little substance out of a, a jam that he heard, and and it was just an incredible moment. Yeah, that that's a very neat uh, track. If any, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening are familiar with it. It's incredibly syncopated. I mean, mm-hmm. Steve does a great job on on the on on the drum track, uh, and I f- believe there's uh, you even wrote a few uh, French lines in there for Al too. Actually, no. Al wrote those. Oh, did he? I, I, I had nothing to do with the lyrics. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. It's a it's a great great track. I recommend that to to anyone, especially to any drummer who really wants to cha- to tackle oh. it. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's a fantastic track. Yeah. Hey, Philippe, you you've over the years you've uh, embraced technology sort of as it comes to you during your whole career, and and man, what uh, kind of technology has totally uh, affected the the type of things that you've worked on? You've worked on everything from the early Moogs, the DXs, Sinclavier emulators, Kurzweil, you name it. And uh, and you were often programmer on a lot of different projects, too. Um, explain a little bit about how you differentiated when you were hired as a session player to play this new technology, these new keyboards, as opposed to programming for them. Because sometimes there were two different hats that people wore. Yeah, well, you know, I was lucky that when I first came to Berkeley um, to study, you know, Legit jazz, you know, and, and improvising with uh, improvisation with uh, with Gary. Simultaneously, the the Moog thing and the synthesizer thing 
started in 1975. Yeah. And Berkeley started a class. It was the beginning of a electronic music class, which, you know, in those days, there was only one book that explained, you know, about sine waves and, and how to create a sound and whatever. And we had two synthesizers to our disposal. There was, mm-hmm. you know, Minimoog and the, and the, and the ARP, the ARP the Odyssey. ARP, yeah. Uh, but I thought, you know, well, I needed you know, the credit and I was kind of vaguely interested in it because, you know, I, I thought, you know, Jan Hammer was, was amazing in, in the mm-hmm. Mahavishnu mm-hmm. thing. I said, well, let me see what I can get out of that. So I kind of joined that and studied and, and so I, I kind of fell into it, but I, I got, I got really interested in synthesizing. I bought my first mini Moog, which I still have to this day, which is the, the one that I use with PSP on the road, actually, the exact same Minimoog that I used with Aldi Miola. Very cool. Um, so I had that going and was always interested in, in programming and kind of playing bebop on the, on the Minimoog at, at Berkeley. And, uh, but I was also a serious pianist. So when I, when I started working with Arif, mm-hmm. So I was definitely using a lot of the technology, which was, you know, the, I was one of the first guys to have an LM1 drum machine and have an emulator. I was one of the, you know, the, the, the first guys who actually got into it and, and got the machine and used it. You right. know, I was, because I, I always liked pop music and, and, you know, just a lot of variety of things, uh, different type of music as well, but, you know, uh, when when I started working with Arif, he knew I was you know also a serious pianist, so I could cover you know a lot of grounds by you know playing piano, playing jazz. I mean, he he liked the fact that Anthony, um, Froni, and me, you know, who were his number one you know call, the go-to guys. Yeah. Um, you know, were also jazz guys and could play you know with with you know with Jero and you know things like that. So. Sure. That gave him a lot of confidence, knowing that you know he had a guy that not only knew how to program and was into electronic music, but also could play jazz and classical and and what and whatnot. So, so that kind of put me in a different, you know, I, I had a different role in 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 that world, you know, because like you said, a lot of guys were just programmer would bring the keyboards and get good sounds and let somebody else play. Right. And there was the pianist that only played the piano and had no knowledge of, of keyboards. That was mm-hmm. kind of a hybrid. I was like a, you know, a, a hybrid, really. Yeah. And, and to this day, I feel the same way. I'm, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I can do, you know, I can fake a lot of things and, and kind of get away with it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that was my, my trade, you know, name. And, 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 and I, could, I could program and, and play synth and... You know, solo in the mini moog and play the piano. It was my thing. Well, let's pause one more time, and I want to check out a track from Philippe's 2009 solo release at World's Edge, and this is a track called "Billy's Blues."
you know, you, you certainly survived and, and you've progressed and you've flourished in the music business. And a lot of there's a lot of brilliant musicians, you know, out there that are just sitting beside, you know, the telephone waiting for the next call or, or gig. And, <laughs> you know, from your standpoint, you know, just for we've got a lot of listeners here. Um, well, I'm sitting next to Skype, you know, waiting for this for Skype to, <laughs> to ring. <laughs> it's just different, you know, but it's the same. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just we've got a lot of listeners out there that are that are musicians, and just you know, advice to them from your standpoint: what does a musician have to do, in, in your in your opinion, to survive the many changes in the business? Well, it's very simple. If you're a musician, and uh, you got to get a day job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> now, next question if here: If you're a musician today, don't even think about it. Just get a day job. <laughs> You know, there's there, there's some truth in that. I take it. Yeah, there's there's definitely truth. I mean, you know, when I when I see the amount of kids that go to Berkeley and and they graduate every year, and I'm thinking, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. Basically, if there's hardly any work for the people, you know, with with experience who have been around, and if there's if there's less and less music and less and less. Um, you know, uh, opportunities for, for musicians. And if the field is getting, you know, smaller and smaller, I said, what are all these people going to do? And, and you know, I mean, you can teach, certainly you can teach, and but, you know, at some point the word is going to come out that, you know, you can get an incredible education in music, but, you know, what are you going to do with it, really? Right. So, you know, it's I mean, that's really my, my question is like I'm just wondering every day, it's, you know, what are kids going to do 10, 15 years from now when music is really not you know, looked at the way it was, you know, growing up. I mean, there was this, this incredible respect and, and we were looking up to musicians who were, you know, I mean, even, even from the, the times of you know, Duke Ellington, you know, who was you know the 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 aura that that musicians had you know certainly now it's more it's it's all about entertainment you know mm-hmm. and they, and it's like a factory like you know how many singers can we how many sing, singers can become american idol exactly right have a career i mean they, it seems like there's like a new guy every every couple of days you know coming out and how many singers do we really need at the end of the day right. you know so what what are we going to do with all this and and i'm not it has nothing to do with talent because i'm sure that you know, there's there's a lot of really talented kids and sure. or talented, you know, by every year. I mean, now not only kids are great singers, but they can accompany themselves playing the upright bass. I mean, that's something that, you know, was unheard of, you know, when I grew up. So the, the, there's definitely more and more talent. But the, but the point is, what opportunity will they have to actually sustain a living and, and actually get the kind of experience that all of us back in the days got from... You know the this incredible amount of of work that we had, and the amount of of opportunities that we had to play with you know incredible musicians, and make something meaningful out of it in terms of tours and you know TV shows like Night Music with Sam Bourne. I mean, that experience alone, you know, as a musicianship. I mean, who who could get anything like it? I mean, what? There's no more variety show on television. There's yeah. no hardly any. Any bands, you know, I mean, there's a few live bands on, on talk shows, but, you know, it's like, you know, playing, you know, 15 seconds bumpers. Is, is that really what you can <laughs> study all your life? You know, your instrument to play is, what is that about? You know, So, right. I don't know. Um, 
like I said, the advice is just have something else going, you know. Uh, well, that's 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 good. Actually, that question came from Uwe in Germany. He was that was that was his question. And okay. I, I want to jump ahead and I want to chat a little bit about your 2006 trio release, The Body and Soul Sessions. And tell me about the uh, inspiration for recording that particular record. Well, the the we had actually done a, a, a previous project with the same. Uh, the same musicians with Scooter Warner on drums and, and David Fink on bass, right. who are you know just some of my favorite musicians. And we had done a record for Japan for a, a Japanese label for for JVC, and it felt so good. And we were so we had such a blast making the record and, and playing together that I I thought you know let's let's make another record like that, but you know geared towards you know the states. The 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 songs were a little more. Um, not obscure, but it was a little more jazzy. The the, the album for Japan. Right. Now this one, we kind of really went for much more pop songs and and like you know covering Earth, Wind and Fire and 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 Steely Dan and all yeah. that. Stuff. Turn it into you know jazz standards if you want, you know, if you will. But so that was really the idea. But just make it really accessible, and I wanted to bring back the accessible vibe of, of what, uh, what Ramsey Lewis had done back in the days of really uh, stripping down the, 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 the bebop thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adding a beat and, and, and bad beat and claps, you know, sure. and bring that to um, and, and, and use contemporary material and, and a, you know, with a contemporary sound. So that's really the idea of the record and I'm glad that kind of worked out. Yeah, you mentioned that on this on this album you had some you know you had some really nice arrangements of of some classic pop songs like Steely Dan's "Do It Again" and or I think it's "Earth, Wind, and Fire" September and and even a Beatles track uh, "Lady Madonna." Just didn't right. have a few of those. And tell me, just curious about the decision to choose those particular songs. I mean, were those meaningful or influential to you? Well, all these songs were all my you know favorite songs. I mean the the the. Uh Fire and Rain was, you know, uh, growing up, I, I loved that song. And, mm-hmm. and I particularly liked, it's funny because the first time I ever heard that song was not the original James Taylor version, but it was David Clayton Thomas version in Blood, Sweet and Tears, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Blood, Sweet and Tears 2, BST2, I think, which uh-huh. was like, you know, a, a record that was on nonstop. That in Chicago were like, it was a constant loop in, in my household. Yeah. So, and I love that song from those days. So, when it was time to make an album with my favorite songs, I mean, those were the songs that I grew up with. And same thing with the the Serge Gainsbourg song. When I, he was one of the few guys that I, I could tolerate to listen to in France. You know, being you know French, one of the few French artists that I could really listen to. <laughs> and that particular song was, you know, the the uh, Harley Davidson was was kind of a cool song. And I said, well, have fun. Could it be to turn that song into a, a jazz standard? So, yeah, there there's songs that I grew up with that I that really meant a lot, you know, as a young teenager, and uh, or more recently, you know, September, and and in the case of "Do It Again" with Steely Dan, I really was looking for a song that had the same kind of feel that Joe Sample came up with uh, his song uh, "Put It Where It Is." Yeah. Um, and and because that song is as as a great you know rock you know party element and it's right, really right, simple right. but it's kind of cool and and when we used to play it as an encore with with Marcus in Marcus Miller's project 
and Joe was playing piano and we used to do that song and I said, man, this, is, this song gets over so amazingly well. I have to find something in the repertoire that feels like that. And then when I heard, you know, Steely Dan, one day I was listening to uh, K-Rock or something in New York and I said, oh, here's the song. That, that, that song could be exactly like Joe Samples, you know, put it where it is, uh, song and have the same feeling. And it kind of did. Well, I had a feeling we'd end up talking about uh, your rendition of Steely Dan's Do It Again. And so I happen to have this uh, track queued up and ready to go. So let's stop and take a listen. This is uh, Philippe Sace's rendition of Do It Again by Steely Dan.
another project I wanted to talk about real quickly um, is in 2009, you, you know, you re- reunited with Simon Phillips and, and uh, Pino Palladino and, and to mix. Uh, you added him to the mix and, and for your solo release at World's Edge. And um, this album was, you know, just talking about that last trio project, um, this album was kind of a, a departure from the trio album, but in a way, sort of a reunion back to, you know, your more expansive, eclectic style that, you know, you've explored in some past solo projects. And your inspiration for this album came from your move uh, to L.A. from New York. Is that right? Absolutely. But give us a better idea of what you were thinking and feeling when you created At World's Edge. Well, the whole move was kind of a, a, um, a sweet and sour kind of move because it was it was just, you know, we were... As New Yorkers, we were, you know, greatly affected by by the 9/11, right? And which really created, um, uh, it, it was such a such a horrible time for a lot of people, but particularly New Yorkers, uh, where everything overnight kind of ended. Uh, uh, you know, Broadway went dark. Uh, SIR closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the rehearsals went to a total stop. Work completely stopped for musicians. Tourists would be too afraid to come. You know, if you had some writing sessions where people from Nashville coming to work with you, they would be afraid to come. So, all of a sudden, we li- we we were in this completely isolated island where people were too afraid to come and work with you, and projects were not coming to New York. So, for you know several years. There was no work, yeah. and uh, so that was kind of the beginning of, of the end, you know, for a lot of us, and and that's when I started planting the seed of, of moving because you know I you know New York just did not recover from nine eleven, um, and um, I thought you know maybe we should start looking elsewhere. So since a lot of the projects I were I was involved in in the smooth jazz world, you know, we're based in L.A., like, you know, uh, Kirk Wellam and, and Rick Braun and Marc Antoine, all those, all those things I was, I was involved in were actually from L.A. And, and I said, well, so I, would, I started traveling to L.A. and meeting some people and doing work here, and Rick Braun kind of planted the seed of, of and I, I so enjoyed working with Rick in his studio and his surroundings yeah. and seeing his lifestyle and seeing how people were, you know, working in the sun all year round and driving their convertibles, <laughs> listening to to their rough mixes from the studio, going out to lunch, having Mexican food out on the patio. I was like, "Man, what am I doing in New York?" So, so Rick is actually the was the instigator for my move to to L.A. And then the fact that you know my studio got flooded in the Big East, the, the Big Eastern. Um, uh, flood uh, of you know four four and a half years ago, which was a disaster. The studio got ruined, oh, and I said, yeah. "Okay, this is it. <laughs> We're getting the hell out of here." Wow. And that was a decisive, um, you know, thing that uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. So we moved to LA, and uh, and then when I got here, it was kind of a kind of a little bit of a, a, a rebirth. And I said, "Well, I'm getting another shot out of." You know, working and 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 you know, getting busy again. As soon as I got to LA, I was really lucky that people in you know started calling me, and I, I got busy with Rick and and Paul Brown and and you know, just a lot of people working on on films and TV shows and whatnot. So it was incredible. So I said, well, I'm gonna make a record that will be maybe the last solo record that I'll that I'll ever make, but I wanted to make it the way I want to make it with all the people that I love and my favorite musicians and try to reconnect with 
the people that I've enjoyed working with the most over the last 20 years. And I reached out to most of them, not all of them. Uh, a lot of musicians are not on the record, but I, but most of them are. And so I made a record, you know, with I made a record that I exactly wanted to make, with no label, you know, breathing down my my neck, telling me what to do for radio or for whatever. Sure. And and I wanted to have the people I wanted, and and it's basically what it is. And and at World's Edge, and but with also the feeling that I feel like. This is my last stop. It doesn't, from here, you don't go anywhere. I mean, it's, you know, there's, and you can't go any more west than where we are now. There's <laughs> the water. In the back is the border. And this is why on the, the album cover, I'm facing, I'm facing east. Yeah. And I'm sort of on a rock because I feel like, you know, I'm at the end of the world. Uh, you know, because every morning that I wake up, I'm three hours behind New York and I'm nine hours behind Paris. So already I'm like completely behind everything. <laughs> so, you know, looking, you know, east to, to you know, my childhood friends, my family, uh, friends in New York, you know, old colleagues and people who have been, you know, all my life, you know, and and uh, and I, you know, so this is why at World's Edge, I just feel I'm at the end of the world, and and this is my last shot out of you know doing something, and you know, for the rest of my uh, my career and 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 natural life, you mm -hmm. know, and. And being in the center of, of you know, the entertainment capital of the world, as they, they call it, but it, it is true that, you know, in terms of whatever is left of the music business and television and, 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 uh, and film, this is the place to be. And all the people you meet, you know, are in, in that business, you know, and it's, it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of inspiring. It's kind of cool. And the lifestyle is, is really great. So that's, that's what that this record came, came about. And we're going to take uh, one final break tonight, and I want to check out a composition from At World's Edge. Uh, this is a track called The Rover, and this is from our guest today, Philippe Sace.
you know, this record, as you mentioned in your bio, could have, could have only been made post-2000 because uh, by this, you know, meant that the, you know, the Internet came into play as, uh, you know, and many of the musicians in, uh, that were involved recorded their parts in locations all over the world and then they delivered audio files to you. And, you know, you, yeah, had, exactly. you had some local guys there like, you know, Rick Braun and Simon Phillips and Lenny Castro that were able to join you in the right. studio. But the other yeah. players were spread out all over the world. Like, you mm. know, you had Kirk Whalem in Memphis. You had Pino in London and Mark Antoine that was in Madrid. You had get guys mm-hmm. in Japan and New York as well. But, you know, with the guys spread out like this, tell me how this affects the overall pro- approach for a record. I mean, yeah, did, you, right. did you get out of these guys what you were hoping for as opposed to having them all there together? Yeah, yeah, you do because you, you know who you pick. You know, you pick musicians that are not only great musicians, but are also great producers and, and know exactly what to do. And, and I have such an affinity for, you know, Pino and, and uh, you know, people like Jeff. You know, I mean, I've got particularly, you know, Mark Pino and Jeff Beale are, are guys that you don't need to tell them what to play. Right. Every single note that they play is the right note. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's what it is. And I'm, you know, I'm not a control freak either. I'm just like, you know, I don't have to hear exactly the notes that I hear. But but in in those with these guys, they play exactly what I want to hear. And this is why I go to them all the time. You know, there's no, there's not another bass player in the world like Pino. And and you know, and everybody knows that. That's <laughs> right. Know? That's so right. You just let, you're not gonna tell Pino what to play. Just like I'll send you a tape. Just send me the send me the files back, and that's that's good enough for me. Yeah. yeah. And Jeff Beal is the same. He's the most amazing musicians I've ever met, and and you know does not does not you know every note that he plays are absolutely meaningful, and you want to use those notes. You know, you you can't. You know, so that's it. Actually, worked out great, and same thing with Angelique Kijo, you know, who's one of the greatest artists on the planet, mm-hmm, and yeah. she does. I mean, you know, I, I all she has to do is is open her mouth, and I get and I get chills. You yeah. Know? Right. So. Well, shortly after At World's Edge, PSP was born, and uh, you know, it was pretty much an extension uh, or continuum of the relationship with you, uh, with uh, you yourself, uh, Pino, and Simon. But musically speaking, the overall feel and the style of the of PSP it t- sort of took a different path. And you know, how did the three of you, when you got together, you know, decide on the style, or did the style just happen? Or uh, tell us how that mixture of uh, of these guys that you'd already had experience playing with, how it sort of came to be. Well, it's it really is a dream come true for me because um, I, I I can't think of in that world in that type of music I can't think of of two better musicians the monstrous you know monster players and but the three of us having been born the same the same year and and grew up in Europe listening to the same kind of stuff and we have a very similar. Uh, background in that we we listen to jazz and we play jazz, but we also played rock and pop and and a lot of you know we're interested in a lot of different. Uh, I mean, Pino can play one day with with D'Angelo and the next day with Herbie Hancock, and then you know going through John Mayer and and Paul Young and and the Who. Yeah, right. You know, so so it's it so it's all very similar that we all can play very rock and roll but we can also have and we also have jazz credits or R&B credits and it's uh, it you know to to me it you know Simon is one of the rare drummers that can play rock and roll and 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 brushes and there's not a lot of guys <laughs> in the world that can do that 
do that, you know, because a lot of great, you know, R&B guys can't play rock and roll. Yeah. You know, and rock and roll musicians can't swing, you know, so he's he's an anomaly. And, and both of these guys are actually an anomaly. So to me, it's a dream come true that we, it, there was never any question of what we were going to play when we first put the trio together and went to Japan. We started playing some covers of Return to Forever and, and some Herbie Hancock stuff and stuff that, and songs that were on the uh, at World's Edge and and that was the style. I mean, that was it. And as soon as we started playing together, we had a sound and we had uh, a way of playing together mm -hmm. that just was, you know, it's right in there that we said, well, this is a trio. This is not the Philippe Says trio. This is a band, you know, and, and that's when PSP was, was, we started PSP. I noticed you have a, uh, a live PSP album that's available on iTunes. But I also know, just following you on Facebook, that you have some recorded uh, material, for, you know, in-studio material as well. Yeah, we, st we started working on a, on a studio album, uh, which, you know, when we were in Europe, we started, um, we only used uh, five or six tracks as an EP. We have, you know, uh, four or five more tracks to go to, to record. We're slowly working on it. We're also working on a DVD, on the live DVD. We, we recorded, uh, we shot a, uh, a live performance in Holland uh, last mm -hmm. month, and uh, we're now editing it, and hopefully by the end of the year, Very cool. we should have a, a DVD of a live performance in, in Holland and the album completed, and hopefully, you know, more goodies as, as we go. But That's fantastic. So that, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, uh, it's so much fun playing with these guys, I can't even begin to tell and you. Another <laughs> great thing about just having Simon on your team is the fact that he's an incredible engineer as well. As well, yeah. So he's down the street, you know, and, and I see him actually, I, I just, I saw him about two hours ago. He's mixing a, a record right now, so his studio is, is down, the, down the road for me, and I'm, I'm right here. And so we're together. The only, the only tricky part is to get Pino, <laughs> who's still in, in London, but he spends quite a lot of time in either in New York or LA, so we get to see him and and uh, and and spend some time with him. Yeah, you know, uh, in the first of the year, we spoke to uh, Simon Phillips. He was the first guest of the year, and uh, everything that you say is is completely true. You know, just uh, his versatility and what the guy can play and how he can literally change. Because you know, um, you know, all I can do is is sort of explain that through the music of Toto. That is the perfect example. I mean, that that gig was so perfect for him um mm -hmm. that it just encapsulates everything they switch so much from jazz and on a fly they're in rock and on a fly he's on brushes and it just uh it was it was a must have been the perfect gig for him as he said you know oh absolutely no it, it really is and and it's it, and it's rare you know he's he's like i said he's one of a kind um he played brushes for a, a rick braun track uh on uh his uh previous solo record and all it takes on, on the track actually that i wrote all it takes and and it completely blew rick's away i mean you know it's a man how can he play brushes well you know he grew up playing straight ahead jazz with his dad you know that's that's how how that worked out you know so and 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 his rock and roll thing is 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 unique you know being british and and having you know grown up and then play with the who right and Jeff Beck. I mean, he's a yeah, he's he's a phenomenal uh, musician. There's there's nobody like him, no doubt. Well, we're excited about your what you just mentioned here a second ago, the DVD and and then the uh, studio album that might be coming out here later. You said later this year. Yeah, yeah, we're we're just uh, work. We just started last week working on a DVD with a director. So hopefully we'll have everything ready. We're already planning uh, another uh, outing in September uh, or. Okay. 
you know, end of October in Europe and hopefully on the east coast again of, uh, of the United States because the, the last tour you know was was really went really well in our the brand name is, is growing and we're trying to to uh, to build up the fan base and we want to keep the the PSP you know brand alive and 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 like I said we have, we have so much fun it's, so we'll We'll try to do as much as we can to finish the album and the DVD before the end of the year. Well, let's uh, definitely keep in touch. And, of course, uh, we'll here at Inside Music Cast, we'll definitely help spread the word as well and make sure everybody, our fans, know about you know your upcoming releases and everything that's happening with you. Thank you. Anything, anything, you know, we appreciate all the all the support. Definitely. Not a problem. Good. Well, um, Philippe, thanks so much for spending time with us here in Inside Music Cast, and uh, we will stay in touch. Anytime. Thank you so much, guys, for having Sounds me. Sounds good. Thank you so much, okay? All right, all the best. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Philippe Sace for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zabe, Uwe Reith, and Mikhail Lingstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.